0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. But he he grew up uh, in England when the bombs were dropping, and uh, uh, his father was in business around the world, and so Trevor's had a global experience from about three years of age onward. And and, uh, so he's a real resource to this community, And uh, he's one of us in the end. He's been a long-time friend of the Council of Public Affairs. And so without saying anything more, would you give a warm welcome to one of our own, Trevor Page. Well, thank you very much, Terry, for that introduction. And thank you all for coming out. It's really nice to see a good full house um, SAGPA has been filling the house every week for several years now and I'm glad that just because I'm speaking that still continues <laughs> but let, let me emphasize talking about China as Terry says yes it is becoming it's an emerging superpower but I am not a China scholar and these days I'm not keeping an eye on China for anyone else other than myself and my family. So having said that, my talk will try, I'll try to cover three uh, sections today. A little bit about my work with the UN in China and a major political event that took place in Tiananmen Square in Beijing whilst I was there. Then I'll talk a little bit about what ordinary Chinese talk about around their kitchen tables. And then, other than the pair of pandas, which has been, been announced as a result of Prime Minister Harper's recent visit to China in February... I'll speculate a little bit about what's more is in the offing between China and Canada. So, firstly, a little bit about my work in China. Um, You know, arriving there for the first time back in 86 was really quite an experience. Uh, Funny little airport. Single-lane road through the countryside into town. Uh, I hadn't expected that. Now, did anybody visit China back in those days in, in the uh, early 80s or even before? One, two, excellent. Two people, and then how many, three, visited back in the very early days of opening up? four my word five excellent and i mean how many people here have visited china oh excellent well I'm almost half the half the room good so my work with the un basically involved administering Um, agricultural development projects. And these were in the fields of irrigation, forestry, soil conservation and soil improvement, aquaculture, inland fisheries, um, and dairying. Approximately $85 million a year worth of assistance. Um, Now the emphasis of projects or the emphasis of concentration of assistance to China was over in the western part of China which was and still is the poorest part of China and that included Tibet and Xinjiang which is the province to the far northwest bordering Pakistan and several other countries. Now, in those days, um, these areas, in fact, much of China, was off-limits to foreigners. So it was only because of my job with the UN that I was able to visit them. And this was an absolutely fascinating experience, not just for me, but also for the people that lived in those areas, because uh, in quite a few cases, this is the first time they'd ever seen a long nose. <laughs> and and, and uh, I'm the champion of long noses, too. Now, the World Food Program stopped providing to f- food aid to China back in 2005, after it was deemed that it had achieved self-sufficiency in food in the late 1990s. China itself is now an important food aid donor, bilaterally, and it contributes cash to the World Food Programme so that WFP buys food in developing countries with the cash China gives and then uses it in projects mainly in Africa but not restricted to Africa but food has always been problematic in China there were major famines in the early 60s following the great leap forward which resulted in the death of millions you know only 15% of China's land area is cultivable. And globally, uh, China has to feed 22% of the world's population on less than 10% of the world's arable land. So that, in itself, is a major, major problem. Despite efforts to curb population growth through the one-child policy, which I'll talk a little bit about later, food production remains one of China's largest problems. China has one of the highest rates of application of nitrogen fertilizer in the production of crops, and um, farm runoff has been polluting rivers, lakes, the waterways, for many, many years. The runoff has also leaked into the aquifers. And in the North China Plain, which is the breadbasket of China, many aquifers have run dry. So China has once again started importing grain, Uh, and that could be important for Canada, but then the CWB, Canadian Wheat Board, or whoever it is, is going to have to revise its strategy if it's going to sell grain to China. I remember uh, every year, for several years, the head of a Canadian Wheat Board delegation would come to my office and complain that once again, the Americans, now the Americans meant either Cargill or Bungie or one of the grain companies, not a quasi-governmental organization, but the Australian Wheat Board, which was very similar to the Canadian Wheat Board, would often win the contracts, and Canada would almost always lose out. And numerous chairs of the, or or rather, not chairs of the Wheat Board, but the head of the Wheat Board delegation would come and complain, there's money passing under the table. And I would roll my eyes and say, well, of course, wake up. You know, if you want a contract, that's what the others are doing. Now, they weren't selling them to the World Food Program. (laughs) They They were selling to the government of China. The world needs to double its food production by 2050. According to UN projections. So China has a major food and water problem. Okay, whilst I was posted with the UN in China, the demonstrations in Tiananmen Square happened. That was the spring of uh, 1989, 23 years ago. And this was the largest political progress, the uh, largest political protest in communist China's history. Now, I'm not going to say too much about it, as it's a subject all on its own. And most people outside of China immediately think of the crackdown, of the government's crackdown on the protesters. But there's a whole raft of important issues that would lead up to the crackdown that tend to get lost. And I'll mention uh, just a few. As most nights during the protests, I was in the square with the students during the demonstrations. It all started, actually, with the death of a former Communist Party leader, uh, Hu Yaobang. Now, he was a a leading reformer. People gathered in Tiananmen Square not just to to mourn his death, but also to express dissatisfaction with the pace of reform. And a whole range of issues. It wasn't a single issue. It was was a bit like when the Occupy uh, Wall Street movement started. I was reminded of this. Because Tiananmen Square has always been important. It's always been sensitive. Uh, since the crackdown, it's more sensitive. But when people accumulate in Tiananmen Square, um, it, I- it is an issue. It has to be, uh, watched. something important is happening. And the death of a respected political leader, particularly... A reformer is important. Important for the people, sensitive for those in power. So, although the demonstration started with students, it was soon joined by workers. Uh, And columns of workers would file past the apartment that I lived in, which had a view of Tiananmen Square, And uh, I couldn't believe what was happening. It was really quite something. Um, I couldn't believe what I saw in the square when the students and workers were joined by government officials. Ministries, whole ministries, were coming along uh, with their banners and placards, and they were demonstrating against problems that they had within their ministry. So it became a very popular movement, um, and when the foreign ministry itself, officials of the foreign ministry, out there with their banners, you know, I thought, my goodness, this is really quite something. Now, I um, I was asked to do this talk just just a couple of sessions ago, so I didn't have time really. I'm afraid to to. Um, digitize my transparencies because I am a photographer and I photograph everything. <laughs> so I, I, I'm sorry about that because that's really one of the sights that I will never forget. Um, anyway, um, a week or so later, well, a week later, in fact, after Hu Yabang's death, the government held a memorial service in the Great Hall of the People, which those of you that have visited China know is right on the edge of Tiananmen Square. So you had the memorial service inside and all the demonstrators outside. And by this time, demonstrators were getting organized. There were a list of protests. They were wide-ranging protests, and these were handed over to the government or the, the, the government official that came out to take it. Now, one of the demands was that the student leaders wanted to meet with the premier of the time, Lee Pung, and this was rejected out of hand. In fact, the petition and the meeting with Lee Peng was rejected right away. So, um, the square had taken on the appearance, not not of the Occupy movement in Lethbridge, but... um, It was in a mess. Tiananmen Square is usually meticulously kept and there were tents all over the place. I don't think the statue of the uh, goddess of democracy had been raised by that time, but litter, tents, although the litter was collected by students and other demonstrators every day, it was a big mess. Students started a hunger strike. And it was timed at an exceedingly embarrassing time for the government. Of course, the entire episode was embarrassing. But it was timed just before the arrival, two days before the arrival of Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, who was coming to visit China as the first head of state of the Soviet Union in 30 years for a summit to put an end to the, not Cold War, but bad feeling that had existed between the two communist powers. So a 30-year summit, monumental event, which didn't take place because students had occupied the square. Gorbachev, when he arrived, actually had to be taken into the Great Hall of the People through the back door. Because the front door was occupied, or <laughs> well, the square in front of the front door was occupied. So, I mean, this was a huge, oh, the, the, the big parade, and China puts on excellent parades. That was cancelled. So, great humiliation for um, the Chinese government. Um, Tiananmen Square, that's all I'm going to cover on Tiananmen Square, but if there are questions afterwards, I'll certainly take them. But the protests are still not talked about publicly by the government. Young Chinese don't even know that they happened. But the profound effect of those demonstrations has not been lost on China's current leaders. Hmm. What do ordinary Chinese talk about around the kitchen table? You know, since retiring a decade ago, I've been visiting China most years with my wife on family visits. And I have to thank my wife, who's a former uh, official of the Chinese central government. She was also seconded to the UN, which is how we met. She opened many doors for me in China. Uh, after I'd gone through the door, she also had to pick up the pieces, uh, which she continues to do. So I thank her for the access that I have to the kitchen tables of ordinary Chinese. You know, obviously there are differences between regions, between rich and poor, uh, and education, but common threads... What do people talk about? Well, they talk about money and how to make more money. 50 years of communism did not destroy the Chinese god, which is money. So they also talk about the price of food, the price of clothes, inflation, which has been very worrisome since the global economic downturn. Uh, China put a lot of money into a stimulus, but I'll come to that in a minute. But they certainly talk about the price of things and how uh, things are getting more expensive. Inflation has now come down in the last uh, three months or so, but it is still a problem. They talk about health problems. They talk about air pollution, which is getting worse by the day, and everybody suffers don't think it's only foreigners over there that have a problem with the polluted air. Uh, many Chinese try to get by with face masks and what have you, but uh, it's, they talk about that. They don't like it. They also make sure that their kids are studying, that their kids are doing their homework, Because their kids, or their kid, I should say, kid, 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 has to get to university. Now, that's not unique to China. It's big all over Asia. And certainly the problems, or the differences between the West, and the West, I I mean Europe and North America, um, is quite obvious. And there are various studies these days that show how the West is getting left behind on the education front. They talk about problems at work local politics and they talk a hell of a lot about corruption and what they have to pay to get things done. Now that's corruption at all levels. Those that are rich talk about they also try and make money quick and try to get their money out. So Those are, I think, common threads about what most Chinese talk around their kitchen table. Uh, I want to just briefly mention two major problems that China has to deal with before moving on to Prime Minister Harper's recent visit. The first one deals with financial stimulus as a result of the global economic crisis. Provinces... And there are 22 of them in China. There are also municipalities and autonomous regions. But provinces have been running out of money for quite a few years now. Central government grants have been drying up. And the provinces are told, well, you've got to go it alone, fellas, because we're not going to bail you out. So you've got to raise your own money. And what quite a few provinces have been doing is they've been acquiring farms from farmers. Now, farms on average in China are small. They're 1.6 acres, in fact, is the national average. But they've been acquiring farmland. They give the farmer a compensation. Um, they give him a house or an apartment. And they give him the equivalent of $50 a month. And then they take the land. Now, what they do with the land is they sell it to a developer. And whoops, there's their money. They got some money (laughs) with which to run the province. Um, (coughs) And the developer puts up apartment blocks, industrial areas, even whole new towns. Now, this certainly created jobs. And that was, of course, the idea of financial stimulus is all over. And it creates jobs. But the result is that there are thousands of empty apartment blocks that no one can afford to buy or rent. There are derelict factories that have never been used. And there are hundreds of ghost towns across the country. Now, I do want to thank Anne Lanier for the email that was forwarded to me by the U of L and the video that she said, Is she here today, Anne Lanier? No, okay, fine. Well, she forwarded this wonderful video made by Australian Broadcasting Service about the ghost towns that nobody lives in. Of course, the developer doesn't get paid without paying bribes to government officials. And uh, contractors don't get paid unless the developer gets his money. The second uh, item... I wanted to talk about briefly, it was the problem of an aging population caused by a longer lifespan and the one-child policy. It's now 30 years since China introduced its one-child policy, which is generally believed to have resulted in 400 million million less mouths to feed. But it also resulted in a whole raft of social side side effects. By 2030, China's population is set to peak at 1.4 billion. But the working age population of 1 billion is expected to peak next year. Of course, China is not alone in having to deal with a shrinking labor force and an aging population, as I look around the room. (laughs) North America and Europe have to deal with it too, but the way they cope with it is through immigration. And China will not adopt that same approach, in my opinion. The days of the one-child policy could be numbered. But obviously, a very fine balancing act is going to be required. Now, I've got just five minutes left, and I'm going to talk about Prime Minister Harper's February visit. Um, You know, strange as it though may seem... Well, not to you here, because you've been to China. But the announcement of a loan, of a pair of giant pandas to Canada is significant. And it's a harbinger of more good things to come. In 1973, when Prime Minister Trudeau visited, he only got a Chinese elk. (laughs) So Harper did well. (laughs) Uh, But... The Prime Minister got off to a very rocky start with, the, with China. Chinese leaders do not take kindly to being lectured publicly, and I underline the word publicly, about value systems of other, other countries, particularly when it comes to human rights. Conferring honorary Canadian citizenship on the Dalai Lama, cozying up to Taiwan, accusing China publicly of, um, what are oh, yes, of uh, industrial espionage, not attending the opi- opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, were all considered unfriendly gestures. So too was not visiting China until the end of 2009, for the first time, almost four years after becoming Canadian Prime Minister. So why the change of heart? Why a pair of pandas? Well, Prime Minister Harper seems to have learnt the importance that the Chinese attach to a loss of face. A loss of face, that's extremely important. The rhetoric has now been toned down, and his meeting in private with the Dalai Lama last month are examples But I think the change is mainly because China wants Canada's oil, gas, potash, and uranium. And it would seem that Prime Minister Harper is also keen to sell them. Well, a wide-ranging set of agreements were signed during the Prime Minister's February visit. But the centrepiece was a declaration of intent, declaration of intent, to conclude negotiations towards a bilateral foreign investment promotion and protection agreement, known as FIPA, F-I-P-A. Now, that agreement has been under negotiation for 18 years. It's aimed at promoting and protecting private investment in the two countries, and it's a sort of insurance policy to minimize risk, risk on both sides. Now, the agreement still has to be ratified by both sides, which is expected within the year. A long time coming? Certainly is. But once it is signed and ratified, or once it is signed and ratified, it is expected to pave the way for a major increase in trade between Canada and China. I'm going to end by reminding you that politically... This is a very sensitive period in China. Later this year, there will be a change of China's leadership. President Hu Jintao will step down at the end of his 10-year term. Vice President Xi Jinping is expected to take over. But that will require the endorsement of the Communist Party of China, which will hold its 18th National Congress, sometime later this year. Behind the scenes, there is a power struggle. Um, And the date of the Congress has not been fixed. So with that, I will encourage you to enjoy your lunch, and I would be happy to take your questions afterwards. Thank you.